The Canby Report is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. I'm Tessa Vikander, and this is the Canby Report, a community conversation edition. Today in the studio, we have two members of the City of Vancouver's LGBTQ2S Plus Advisory Committee, Brooklyn Fowler and Linnea Strom. Linnea Strom is co-chair of the City of Vancouver's LGBTQ2S Plus Committee. She does advocacy work with seniors and advocacy work around transportation and is also a parent, which is a huge job. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> to the studio. Thank you. Brooklyn Fowler is an activist, a co-chair of the LGBTQ2S plus committee for the city of Vancouver and a frontline support worker for people who have experienced gender-based violence. They are also a writer. We'll be talking about the committee's new initiative to get council to pass an anti-hate policy that will guide the city on how to create spaces and events that protect marginalized groups from hate and discrimination. This episode is paid for by listeners like you who've contributed to our show. Head to patreon.com slash report to contribute. If you'd like to follow us on social media, our handle is at report. And if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, my handle is at Tessa Vikander. That's at T-E-S-S-A-V-I-K-A-N-D-E-R. Broadly speaking, the committee advises Vancouver City Councilors and staff on how to improve access and inclusion for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, two-spirit, and queer communities so that they can fully participate in city services and civic life. So this year, the committee is working on an anti-hate policy. But first of all, welcome to both of you. Thank Thank you so much for having us. How are you both doing today? Great. Thanks. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks for coming in. We're in a very tight little cozy studio and it's already getting quite warm in here. I love it. I love that you can see the sky train from here. It's very Vancouver. (laughs) Yep, totally. (laughs) Very Vancouver. To get going, Brooklyn, can you tell me a bit about this anti-hate policy? Generally speaking, what is it? For sure. So right now, it isn't a real thing. It doesn't yet exist. So right now, it's a set of ideas that's been tossed around by the panel of the 14 of us who make up the advisory committee. We're we're a group of 14 very different and deliberately very different people with very different sets of lived experience and skills and strengths. And so we choose our our policy initiatives or the things that that we're going to work on for each of our terms. And this term, we've realized that the rise of hate in the city of Vancouver especially in the last couple of years, especially within the geopolitical climate that we're living in, has become too close to home and very close to home for a lot of us. The prevalence of hate against specifically trans communities, specifically trans women, has grown at exponential rates. And for the for the group of us, we've decided that that's the, the biggest and most significant impact that we can make in our, you know, relatively quite short time that we have together. Right. So you mentioned that the hate against trans women is growing. I know one thing that I've often wondered myself is, like, is it growing or is it that we're seeing it more or people are naming it more for what it is and and acknowledging that? What's your perspective on that? My perspective? Well, so for in Canada, I was trying to look up the exact statistics because, you know, as a recovering academic, I often value hard data and statistics. And so StatsCan actually doesn't disaggregate the statistical data against hate crimes against trans people. They only look at crimes on people on the basis of sexual orientation. So right now, I can't answer, and to my knowledge, no one can answer conclusively what the what the changes or what the upswing is. But 
from personal experience, the amount of, of rhetoric that's growing and the the amount of safe harbor that people with these mindsets and with these deeply hateful, deeply exclusionary, deeply discriminatory ideologies are gaining such traction by having access to spaces, including spaces owned by the city of Vancouver or operated by the city of Vancouver. And that, to, to me, speaking for myself, is is a cause of great alarm, seeing these spaces being used for the purposes of propagating hate. And when it's people who are able to use and manipulate language with quite a lot of skill and a great deal of, of con- social connectedness to, to networks and to points of privilege and power, they're able to enact that power over you know, people like me and people like my, my communities, my friends, who are directly impacted by the rise of this hate and these hateful ideologies. People are being empowered and in a way radicalized by being privy to this hate, by learning these ideas and learning the language to more effectively oppress people. You said people like me. Is it worth discussing at this point how you identify? For sure. So for myself, I consider myself to be a non-binary, sometimes femme of spectrum, but gender fluid, queerdo. Awesome. And so what does that mean in terms of the pronouns that you use? For myself, I go by they, them, theirs. Thanks. And uh, for what it's worth, I'm Tessa. I'm a cis femme and I go by she, her. (laughs) Linnea, do you want to share how you identify? Well, I'm a cis uh, femme and I go by she, her, or they, them, theirs. Thanks. Linnea, can you tell me a little bit about this anti-hate policy? What are you thinking when you envision it? Well, I mean, what I envision versus what the city can actually execute are two very different things. So I envision a world free from hate and oppression of all groups, including the trans community. But what I hope to do is to really rally with other city committees that are also working on this initiative. There's also an uptick in anti-Semitism in the city that's quite dramatic. There's, you know, hatred of all kinds, definitely against black people, people of color, indigenous. It's like an ongoing problem. And this is just one area of focus that our committee can really work on. And the reason we're excited about working on it is that we do have the leverage with some city councillors who are taking initiatives around this, as well as city agencies that are also recognizing the challenges within their own agencies. So we're hoping to bring everybody together to make a really powerful motion to city council and get some of these spaces made safe for everybody because it's not a safe space if you feel scared, oppressed, harmed by the, either the language or the visuals of what's going on around you in a publicly funded space. And when you say um, spaces, can you elaborate on a bit more what that means in, in terms of this, how this policy might apply to Vancouver? Well, I mean, it would apply to any public space rental, right? So I can think of like the library has rooms that they rent, but we also have cultural spaces that are for rent. So we want to also work on that angle and make sure that, you know, those, they don't move from the library to another cultural space. And, you know, uh, there's also uh, recreational spaces that have the same issues. And certainly people have the freedom to believe what they want and they can walk down the street believing it. It's about what you're doing within socially sanctioned public spaces that are supposed to be safe for everyone that we're really addressing this. So one of the concerns that you're hoping that this anti-hate policy addresses is the use of, say, for example, neo-Nazis or people who, you know, have generally hateful opinions towards trans people to, to prevent them from being able to rent space from rooms that are under the purview of the city in some way. Yeah, because that's actually the only place where we can have any kind of control over it. 
You know, there, it's very clear within Canadian legislation and law over what people are allowed to express and not express and in which sorts of spaces. But these are kind of like those spaces that we get a little stuck in because there's that idea of freedom of speech. And, and you know, a lot of these places don't want to restrict someone's freedom of expression. And that's not our intent either, or free speech. It's more like if your free speech is infringing on the rights of others, it's pretty clearly defined that you shouldn't be doing it. And there's pretty sneaky ways that some of these organizations are using to kind of get around that, which is not talking directly about it, but talking indirectly in a way that is still oppressive and harmful to another group of people. If we were to insert you know, any kind of other group other than trans into the equation. And we would just be horrified. Like, how can you say these things? Like, like they don't deserve to exist and we're going to call them by these horrible names. And, you know, if we were to put any other group of people into that equation, we would be horrified. But because it's trans people, there's this idea that somehow we're not going to defend them. But we as a committee absolutely are. Like, we feel very passionate and strong that, you know, our society is nothing if we don't lift up everybody and bring everybody along. And as queer people, that's especially applicable to our community in this instance. Great. Thank you. You're both um, so intelligent and articulate. I feel very lucky to have you here in the, in the studio today. So some news just dropped today, um, which is that the Vancouver Public Library has given the go-ahead for Megan Murphy, who is a fairly widely known at this point writer and speaker. And so she is going to be renting a space at the Vancouver Public Library for the second time. So mm -hmm. now last year, the Vancouver Public Library allowed Megan Murphy and her gender ID YVR panel or group to rent one of their rooms. There was quite significant backlash from queer and trans communities as well as allies. And one of the results was that the Vancouver Pride Parade said, OK, Vancouver Public Library, you cannot participate in our parade this year, um, which is a pretty significant move from any organization, especially such as Pride, which holds a lot of sway. But it seems that even that has not stopped the Vancouver Public Library from going ahead with a similar event this coming year. I didn't actually know that news, so I'm now feeling a little bit crushed that... Uh... <laughs> I mean, part of what Brooklyn yeah. and my advocacy is about is also about meeting with all the stakeholders and really trying to figure out what the resistance is and this and that. And uh, we haven't had that meeting yet, but it is set up. And so now, you know, I don't know. I guess we'll find out how it goes. I'm very curious to find out how, what their logic is behind that. You know, why why they think the way they think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And I guess just coming back to the our, our advocacy towards a citywide anti-hate policy is trying to get a better, more in-depth sense of what are the roadblocks that the VPL is hitting. Because, you know, even as a as an activist who sees the most, you know, cynical sides of life, I in, I insist on being an optimist. So I want to give them as, as much leeway as I possibly can to assume the best of intentions and that this is reflective of a lack of language or a lack of skills or a lack of sufficient community connection or consultation. That's something they're not getting something that they need in order to act equitably in a way that doesn't terrify me as a trans person and make a lot of trans communities feel excluded or unsafe in connecting with a place that's been traditionally as significant and safe and essential for us as the library, our public libraries have been. 
So I think that's sort of part of my own motivation towards this this policy advocacy is what what are the tools that they're lacking and what can we do to pr- provide them with those tools to bridge that gap. On its website today, the VPL has said that it considered the room booking by Megan Murphy under a new policy. The VPL board says that it has consulted with lawyers and that, quote, after a difficult and emotional discussion, a majority of the board decided to accept the rental request. As with other room rentals, acceptance of this rental request does not mean that the board endorses or agrees with the positions of the group of individuals using our space. The VPL says that it recognizes the importance of freedom of expression as a core principle of democracy and identifies it as an organizational value. The VPL also says that it's committed to fostering inclusion and reducing discrimination. So given that this event is scheduled to go on, can we talk a little bit more about the backlash that we saw last year or kind of how, how you're feeling? Linnea, you mentioned that you were feeling defeated from it. Well, just in that moment, I felt defeated, but I'm not going to let it defeat me. That's, you know, just an emotional response of finding out new information. <laughs> but I guess it's disappointing that we haven't really gotten a firm policy from them before this. Their policy, as as it seems, is released at the same time as them making this decision to rent the space. So it doesn't really allow, it doesn't seem to be allowing for the stakeholders who are most impacted by this decision to actually be able to weigh in on the decision. And uh, that just seems very short-sighted to me. And, you know, just reading off uh, what the board says uh, about freedom of speech and then the, in the next sentence saying that they support, you know, how did they phrase it, like marginalized communities or whatever, uplifting them. It's 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 not doing any of those things. So I, I don't actually think that they're following their own ideals. They might think they are, but I think they're misguided in their ideals. I hear you. And Brooklyn, how about you? What do you think? I mean, exactly. I think to Linnea's point, I think I had the same piece resonated with me when you were reading their statement about what does that mean when they say, like, I forget the exact quote, but what, what does it mean when they say that they're engaging carefully with with communities? You know, I, I need to see the receipts. I need to know what do you mean by that? Because I'm not aware of that. And that doesn't mean that it hasn't been happening. But in the various spheres that I'm connected to in the city, which are quite a few, which is a few different spheres, I don't know of it. And I can't conclusively say that, therefore, that means that they haven't engaged with trans and queer communities, but I don't know of it. And that for me, that's a huge problem because I called, I emailed, I left voicemails. I am a concerned citizen who wants to know because I was physically frightened. I was physically scared for my safety as a result of that event. And I have boatloads of privilege. So I, you know, I can't even imagine the visceral reaction for people who have way, way, way less amounts of privilege to protect them in life. So for me, this event just brings back again a sense of, I think defeated was the perfect word. For me, I'm not even feeling the visceral anger and fear that I had this time last year. For me, I'm feeling like I kind of want to go hide under a rock because I don't I don't know how to fight this. And and part of me wants to say, too, that, you know, when it's when it is somebody who's got a really strong, hateful ideology, there really is nothing I can do to change that person's heart and mind, nor do I have any interest in devoting my energy and time to that project. But when it is an institution like the VPL who I'm just not willing to let go of or sell out, I want to continue to just dig deeper and engage more strongly and build these relationships and get connected. You know, when they're speaking of the board of directors, who are these people? What are the stakeholder conversations like? Who are they engaging with? 
and who are they not engaging with, who they definitely should be, and where are the gaps? How can we bridge the gaps? I just want to get down to brass tacks and have a to-do list. Thanks for that, both of you. Wow, the city is very lucky to have you both working on the <laughs> advisory committee, and that's unpaid labor, right? A lot of unpaid labor, <laughs> especially over the last few weeks. We've been very, very, very busy, but we have like great board members that sit on that advisory with us, and I feel like it's this term we're like seeing a tremendous reflection of our community and its diversity. We have lots of young energy there, which is fantastic. We have like just people from all walks of life, all cultures, all ideologies. And, and so it's quite exciting uh, to be kind of working with everyone on some of these things and have all of that way in when we're moving forward on, you know, being a voice for our community within the city. And we recently had the Council of Councils meeting, which is where all of the advisory councils from the whole city of Vancouver get together. And what was so neat about that is you're in a room talking about your priorities and there's like all this excitement from all the other committees, whether it be, you know, the seniors committee, the women's committee, the cultural uh, committee of the city. They're all like, hey, we're working on that too. And you realize like there's all these things, all these layers and that are the things that we sort of you know, come up for our community as priorities are actually priorities across multiple communities. And that if we all work together, we can make a real change in the city of Vancouver all the way around. Mm. So speaking of the kind of the breadth of different interests and, and needs of of our communities in Vancouver, I remember that Brooklyn and we were chatting before this show, you mentioned that part of building this anti-hate policy will be to consult with groups from across the city. So it's it's not just in, in keeping with the LGBTQ2S plus kind of mandate, but, but really broadening that. Can you both tell me a little bit about how how you'd like to see that happen? And I guess it sounds like it started a bit at the it, Council of yeah, Councils already, meeting. Yeah, I think it's already started because at that meeting, we were able to make really strong connections to other committees. And it also kind of jogs your memory and reminds you of other committees and the work that they're doing. And to always be thinking in the back of your mind, who else is impacted by this? You know, we have a one one initiative that seems kind of like, OK, why is that so important? Street lighting, right? But so that's also a huge issue for seniors. It's a huge issue for people with disabilities. It's a huge issue for women in terms of safety in our cities. And all of a sudden you realize all these other committees have a stake in this idea and wanting to, to change how this is being addressed in our city. Can we sidebar actually on street lighting? <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Sidebar away. <laughs> um, so there is an area in my neighborhood that I think is very, very poorly lit. Yes. And it actually scares me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what can a citizen do with when they see that? Like to me, when I think of calling 311 or emailing a counselor, I, I think of bureaucracy and maybe just like not being heard very quickly. And so I'm a little like, ugh, like I'll just go and continue on in my day. What do you think is the best thing to do? 311, unfortunately, or, um, you know, you could reach out to, there is a committee, I think, it, what is it called, Environment and Safety or Safety Advisory Committee? Okay, um, but I know that they're compiling a list, and I know the city has a list of all of the areas that have poor lighting. 
Um, Amazing. Yeah. So there, there is a list, but the problem is the turnaround isn't coming fast enough. So, you know, as you probably have heard in the news, Vancouver is pays like the lowest tax of any city, any major city across Canada per capita. So our, we don't actually have much funding. We don't as a city like and we and yet we're the most expensive city to live in. And we have all these very wealthy homeowners, but they've deliberately kept the tax rates really, really low, which means some of these initiatives just like quick, you know, quick turnaround on lights, which really you shouldn't have a light out or very poor lighting for very long. It's, it's a real serious safety issue in a city, but it's just grown into this long, elongated monster where it's taking months or sometimes years to address poor lighting conditions you know in certain areas okay thanks for that pivoting back to the lgbtq2s plus committee why is having an anti-hate policy uh, important for you on a personal level it's important because i'm a parent of a trans child and i'm friends with trans folks and i just want a world free from all forms of oppression and i see you know hatred and the uptick of hate speech um, and ideology just as very disturbing and and they definitely have shown that there are trends of a, a huge uprise in in these things especially in british columbia and I think that we as citizens need to be concerned um, when anybody is getting, you know, harmed in this way, but also within our own community and in the community context, especially then. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting to see this kind of rise of hate against queer and trans folks because we're also seeing it go along with various wins. So, for example, um, BC Human Rights Tribunal last year ruled in favor of Morgane Auger and her complaint against a Christian activist who had like printed flyers deadnaming her, for yeah. example. And yeah, it is important to remember that although we're having some of these wins, we're also seeing a very loud and opinionated, like small minority of activists who hold quite homophobic or anti-trans views. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. they go in parallel. They're very vocal. Yeah, they go in parallel. I sometimes feel like as things move forward in in progression in society that there's this backlash. There's this minority people, and they are often a very small minority, but they tend to be very vocal and very angry about the change and not willing to progress further with society. And here we are, you know. But it, be, it makes for a scary time when it should be a time of celebration and a time of like, yay, we're getting somewhere. And I think that's their whole intent is, you know, to make it, to try and reverse the, the joy that comes with the success. Exactly. To maintain the status quo, to preserve things the way that they've always been and to keep us on the defensive or on our, you know, on our defensive, defensive stance fighting against things and having to be reactionary to things instead of moving forward, like you said, moving forward and celebrating the achievement of the SOGI 123 education, which, you know, as somebody who grew up in Surrey during the Surrey book banning case, when I was in high school, our school district said that it was, I mean, I guess not illegal isn't the right term, but they banned any discussion of queerness, transness. You couldn't read about it. You couldn't talk about it anywhere in my school district. They fought so hard for that that they went to the Supreme Court of Canada where they lost mercifully. But that was the context I grew up in. That's that's what education in B.C. was for me. And so now, you know, becoming of an age where, you know, I don't have children, but where that's a possibility and knowing that they can go to a school where SOGI 123 education is the norm and is required, that's 
that's the kind of change that just makes my queer heart unbelievably overjoyed and filled with sparkles and gratitude Mm. for all the work that made that possible. Agreed. So we talked a bit about how some of this kind of anti-queer, anti-trans stuff is working to dampen that celebration. Something that I would love, love to share is, well, it's kind of a sad thing, but a friend of mine yesterday had a date cancel on her after she came out, after she, after this date found out that she was bisexual. Mm. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like, I love your queerness. It's amazing. So one thing that I was saying to her, I was like, can we do something to celebrate your queerness? Like, let's, let's appreciate that. Um, so I'm going to send her a rainbow towel. <laughs> a rainbow hand towel. And I was just wondering if, you know, amongst all of this, the talk about the difficult, if if either of you have like small stories you might like to share about celebrating the queer, celebrating the trans in, in your daily lives recently or, or an honoring. Well, I can share, you know, a cute little story is like we had a Christmas dinner at our house and my my trans child brought another kid over um, who didn't have as supportive a family. And we are now just carrying on doing our usual family celebration stuff, which is pretty low key and fun. And all of us, and this other youth was quite uh, sort of shy or type, and then said, sort of commanded the room and said, Can I just say something? And we all listened. <laughs> we all stopped and quieted down. And he said, can I just say how awesome it is to see such a loving family who really like sees each other and gets each other. And it was just, it was really heartwarming to see that we could provide that alternative to what, you know, being in a queer family can look like. And we also realized that every single person that was there at that meal was queer. There was me, my wife, my two kids, and then, uh, one of my kids' partners <laughs> and this extra uh, kid that came along that was a good friend. So it was kind of a neat moment to realize that and to realize that out of all of the people there, there was more than half the people were non-binary or trans too, you know. So it is, the world is changing. That is the dynamic of a family now. And, you know, we have to learn how to embrace that as normalized as any other family unit. It's just people. It's just people loving other people and supporting them. So that's my little story. I love it. I got goosebumps. <laughs> it makes me so happy. <laughs> that's so beautiful. How about you, Brooklyn? Do you have anything? Um, I think what came first to my mind is, you know, coming out as it is a recovering, like, university survivor Um, (laughs) launching into professional life as someone who decided that I'm going to be out as non-binary that I'm going to navigate navigate professional spaces and figuring out what a career is going to be as a non-binary person I think I had so much I know I had so much anxiety about that proposition and you know sort of entering city spaces and different engagements there and professional spaces where my career is concerned and, and sort of testing the waters and wondering, you know, like, where are going to be my sticking points? Where are going to be the roadblocks? And just finding the sense of trust building as I realize I poke over in this direction and there's no roadblocks there. And so I ask this person and they're just gentle and supportive and interested in learning. And 
and whether or not someone is approaching me because they're they're so steeped in this knowledge already and they're surrounded by queer and trans communities and so they're very fluent with they them pronouns or non-binary folks or transness or other folks who you know I think of a, a fantastic person that I spend a lot of professional time around who greeted me in the hallway one day and said oh how are you today and said oh I'm so sorry how are they today <laughs> no 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 you is fine there's no gendered connotation to you but for me it was just a moment of you know you're learning you're doing the work and I can see the wheels turning in your brain and most importantly I can see your heart radiating out and that's that that's what I that's the best case scenario that's the most I can possibly hope for that's wonderful that's amazing that's so nice to hear for those spaces yeah can I add one more really quick cute one actually this just happened the other day is my daughter posted on Facebook that the Merriam-Webster dictionary had now accepted them they theirs as pronouns uh, Mm -hmm. and normalize the usage of it as a as a one solo person right and I said I posted um oh that's one of my pronouns under (laughs) because your kids never ask you what your pronouns are I'm here to tell you like they want you to respect theirs but they have never asked me not once and so of course she responded being like what (laughs) you never told me that and I said well you never asked and uh, to you I'm mama and that's all you think about right (laughs) So that's my other little funny thing about generations and how these things uh, play out. Because sometimes they're, you know, the young, the younger folks and, you know, she's 20, she's gonna be 25 this year. So, you know, she just never thought to ask. Right. Yeah, I think that's a, a thing that we... But demands that I ask. Of course, of course, of course. As someone who just exited their 20s, I'm definitely um, getting a better appreciation of, of how little children seem to inquire about the well-being of their parents as well. Yes. Yeah, so once they become it's adults. A, it's a, a learned thing. Like it's, a learned it's, thing. it's a biodynamic thing. Yeah. And uh, in healthy families, I think there has to be a period of separation. And then there's a period of growing back together in a new way and sort of seeing who we are now in this dynamic and and then it shifts again throughout our lives just like any love relationship any marriage you constantly have to reevaluate it and say where are we at now what do we want next how do we want to relate and i yeah Awesome. And now Merriam-Webster Dictionary also coined, or not coined, but said that they was their year, word of the year, word of the year for yes. 2019, yeah. which is really wonderful. It is, yeah. We're uh, really Brooklyn, real. Pardon me? We're really real. Yeah, now. we're really real now. <laughs> no one can argue against that, right? Yeah. Brooklyn, you mentioned that um, you were going into city spaces and, and kind of poking around with your, your non-binary identity and, and finding that there weren't a ton of roadblocks. You know, that makes me think about the access policy of the city of Vancouver around washrooms. Can we talk a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, fair point. So my own experience of navigating washrooms, I tend to go with utilitarianism, either if if I'm in a particular state of need, I'll go with the closest one. But in the city spaces, specifically city hall, and by that I mean the pathway between where I enter the building and where our meeting room is, the washrooms that I go past on that journey are gendered. And so for me, it's sort of, well, this is the one that's closest to me. And in some settings, you know, not in this case, but in some settings, if I'm, you know, at a concert or where there's a lot of alcohol, I will tend to side with the female side of things. It just feels like my better option. But so that's definitely something I'm aware of. I love the signage. You know, they've got the signage has been adopted across any and all city facilities at this point, that all city washrooms and absolutely all premises are state, the trans people are welcome here, which is wonderful it's a it's a step and it's a wonderful step 
but even just reflecting on on that journey that I make from the entry point to the meeting room that there isn't a non-gendered washroom I haven't sought out to see if there is one that could reflect that there just isn't one on the premises there probably is but I don't really answer to that question I'd be mm. interested to know but the um uh, like it sort of as a segue to that is that the parks board is looking at building new washroom facilities and it's a huge capital investment that rolls out over far too many years <laughs> if you ask me um, and they have been asking for our input on what we want to see in washrooms. And, you know, it's pretty obvious that every single group would benefit um, in our in our uh, society here in Vancouver from having single stall washrooms that are like self-contained, that have everything you need in a washroom in them and ungendered so that anybody can use them wide enough for wheelchairs, flat ground, no stairs up or down, no you know, extra doors, opening, closing, you know, all those things. So we're hoping that they'll move, they'll take those things, you know, seriously and move forward with new designs based on some of that so that, you know, the, the thing that Brooklyn's describing can just get slowly, well, we'd rather it be quicker, but, you know, even more sort of, I guess, useful and productive for all people. And, all, you know, all trans people won't have to make a decision about which washroom they're going into. And when you described, you know, Brooklyn, the lack of safety uh, making your decision making, if you have a single stall washroom that's non-gendered, you don't have to worry about them being someone else in a free washroom. <laughs> like, you're the only one in there. You're safe. Mm. You know, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was something that I noticed a couple of years ago, just that at the community center that I go to, that all of a sudden all of the signs and all of the doors change to say trans people are welcome. Mm -hmm. And it, it seems a bit like a stopgap measure. It's like it's a that's a start, right? So it's exciting to hear that the city has been in consultation with you for your input on, you know, what is next. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we like to think they take our <laughs> opinions into account. I mean, I, I certainly think with any city committee, you really hope that they come to you early on, not end at the end of the game for any of these things, because if your policies and your decision making is informed by the communities that you're meant to serve from the beginning, instead of, well, we're here at the end now with our final design, and do you have any tweaks? <laughs> you know, there's very different energy about that. Exactly, so that we can have something that's more substantive in the way of feedback. Mm -hmm. For yeah. sure, for sure. So as we wrap up, is there anything from you that you'd like to share about if someone wants to get involved with this anti-hate policy or learn more about the LGBTQ2S plus committee? How can they get in touch with you or are there ways for them to um, take action? They can always email us. I don't have the email address on me. Do you remember it off the top of your head? No, <laughs> but they can go to the city of Vancouver, like vancouver.ca and search the LGBTQ2S plus advisory committee. I have a feeling. And find our contact email. I have a feeling it's the name of our committee at vancouver.ca. I think that's probably I true. I think that's probably it, but we'll they should do their with, due diligence. We'll put it up <laughs> with the show notes. But um, they can always contact us. We have a subcommittee formed to, for this issue. So anybody is welcome to join in on a subcommittee. Cool. Joining the actual advisory committee, you apply online and then it's vetted out through the city and they pick who they want for each uh, advisory committee. And I think we're full right now, but someone could always um, keep an eye out. And if there's ever an opening, because sometimes people do 
drop off and we have spaces open up uh, midterm. Mm -hmm. And then also once this term comes to an end, uh, which do we have the exact date yet? I don't December, December, of, December of, of 20, 2020, they're going to elect a whole new advisory board. Mm -hmm. So that'll be another time that somebody could apply. I think they would apply probably in the following December, January, mm -hmm. somewhere yeah. in there. Yeah. Yeah. In the past, it's been just after the term wraps. Yeah. So I do encourage civil, getting involved in civic policy because you really realize how, how it works and you find out how you can actually make change instead of just wish that change would happen. And you also learn the limits of that and which kinds of dynamics you have to operate under. But once you kind of figure it out, you realize that there's a real place of empowerment that can happen as well. Glad to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. I think we, we sort of find each of our own skill sets and superpowers and sets of lived experience and how we can apply that in the most useful way to achieving the very ambitious goals that we set as a as a group. And yeah, and I'm, I'm just always very excited to see the work, the, the work plan that we're going to come up with on each term and where we go with this. And so I think that this is this is to, to my to my mind and to my heart, the most exciting use of our time for the, the remaining year that we have together this anti-hate policy. The anti-hate policy. And I'm just very excited to see where it goes from here and to continue coalition building. And as was said earlier, to, to continue reaching out to other folks because, you know, my motivation is uh, from an anti-transphobia perspective. But, you know, as Lena said, there's so many other upswings in, in hate rhetoric and in hate crimes and violence and just all this awful, awful, awfulness that is, you know, in, in many ways fed into by the global political climate, but in many ways it is very homegrown and very Vancouver rooted. So I'm just excited to see where it goes and to continue coalition building with other stakeholders who want to approach in a good faith way. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for coming in today. And as a resident of Vancouver, thank you so much for all of your labor that goes into sitting on this advisory committee and, and for advocating for marginalized folks. It's, it's deeply needed. Thank oh, you. Thank you for having us. It's yeah, it's been wonderful nice to, to, talk. Be able to talk to you about it. Bye, everyone.